0: Amen. Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be tonight. We've been in Acts chapter 18 for a few weeks, and we are studying the book of Acts. We are on week 33. Hope you're not getting tired of it yet. Hope you're enjoying it. Uh, it's taken a while, but that's okay. It's, you know, we're just going verse by verse. We're not skipping anything. Uh, so we're Acts chapter 18 tonight. Now, just to give you a brief review of last week, Paul and his team are in Corinth, uh, and they're establishing the Corinthian church. And uh, I mentioned last week, maybe you should start reading First and Second Corinthians, so maybe you had some time to do that, or I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you did it or anything like that, you know, but that'd be good if I did, because then I'd know who was really getting something out of it, you know. But, but um, it does change the way you read the epistles when you study the book of Acts, and you kind of connect all these things and these in these pieces together. It's like Acts is telling the story, and then you read the epistles, and you you find out how he's writing a letter to those people that he ministered to, and it kind of changes everything. So Paul was in Corinthians, in Corinth, for eighteen months, and he uh, keep few key moments. You know, he uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He met he met them there and forged a very meaningful relationship with them. He stayed in their house, lived in their house while he was there. They were both tent makers. He and uh, Aquila were tent makers, and so they were doing that together to sustain themselves. And you remember also that they did have sort of some unique fruit in Corinth in that Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue... Even though the synagogue and the Jews had pretty much rejected Paul and his message, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, actually got saved and gave his life to the Lord. It was just kind of amazing turn events. He didn't usually have that kind of fruit when it came to the Jews, but in that instance, he did. Even though the rest of them rejected him, you'll also remember that Paul has a vision where he was about to leave. He was about to leave Corinth. And Jesus appeared to him and said, no, I want you to stay. I'm going to protect you. You're not going to be hurt. You're not going to be harmed. I want you to stay and keep producing fruit here. And so he did. So that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. The very last thing that happened that we read about was Sothenes, who his plan kind of backfired on him. He thought he was going to rile everybody up against Paul Paul. Uh, and then when it didn't work out, they all turned on him and ended up beating him and punching him and, you know, whipping him and those things. And then we found out later when he writes Corinthians that actually Sothenes was traveling with Paul. So he kind of had to come to Jesus meeting and I guess slapped him around a little bit and got his stuff straight. And then he ended up becoming a Christian too. So uh, maybe he said these Jews aren't that great after all. You know, he wanted, to, he wanted to join Paul's team. And so that's where we pick up in Verse 18. It says after this Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Cenchreae he had cut his hair for he was under a vow so let's talk a minute and talk let's take a minute and talk about this actually do we have the map of the second missionary journey i know it's in there somewhere so if you can find it and get that pulled up i do want to show you the, this one thing but Paul Paul was there, and it says that he had, um, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, if you look, where, the, where we're at here at Corinth is all the way over in the very left of the uh, map, and it's a green, that green section is where Corinth is, and right below it is Chintria, where, uh, where that's the port where he was leaving out of. Basically, his, his missionary journey is finished at Corinth. And he's leaving out of that port. And you can see he's going to sail all the way across the Mediterranean. He's going to make one stop in Ephesus. And then he's going to sail all the way through the Mediterranean back to uh, Antioch where he started. But let's talk about this vow that he's under here. Because the Bible talks about uh, a few of these types of vows. And it's just interesting. It gives us a little bit of information about Paul and what he thought was important, and what kind of things he did to strengthen his relationship with the Lord, and what things, what disciplines he had in his life, what things he thought were important to do in order to stay close to the Lord, in order to stay sharp, uh, and stay, you know, committed to the Lord. And this vow is one of those things. Now remember that Paul, even though he was a Jew, he's totally set free from following the law, right? He, you can read the book of Galatians. You can read his letters in the epistles. He is totally set free from following the law. He, he feels no obligation, even as a Jew, to follow the law. He's very clear in his understanding of this in the New Testament. He makes it so clear that if you follow the law in order to be made right with God, he said, you're, you're basically nullifying what Christ did on the cross. So that's not why he's doing this. But does that mean that we can't draw principles from the law? that we can't draw, you know, some principles that would affect the way that we do things. I think tithing is an example of that. I mean, technically tithing, even though people tithed outside of the law, tithing was part of the law, but it's something that we still do today, the principle, following the principle, but we're not technically following the law when we do it. Same thing with this. This vow that it seems like Paul was under was the Nazarite vow. And this is described in Numbers chapter 6. So let's talk about this vow and exactly what it was. Uh, At least his vow was based on the Nazarite vow. How many of you ever, when we've done the 21 days of fasting at the beginning of the year, maybe, you know, this was going on probably a decade ago. People were real into this. I don't know if they're still doing it now as much. But people used to do the Daniel fast. Just by a quick show of hands. Anybody ever done the Daniel fast? All these... Yeah okay we got some in the back too all these over in the corner that that all the Ameners and Hallelujahs up here and left they they all did the Daniel fast yeah I did the Daniel fast many times but it's because in the book of Daniel Daniel did a twenty one day fast and actually the reason we fast twenty one days the reason why a lot of churches fast twenty one days is just like a model off of what Daniel did and when Daniel did his fast. There are certain elements of it, like he, he didn't eat any pleasant foods. He ate mostly like beans and lentils and things like that. You know, no meat, no wine, no, no desserts, things like that. And so we just model it off it. This is kind of what Paul's doing with the Nazarite vow, it seems like. We know he wasn't following it exactly because he didn't do every single thing that needed to be done for the Nazarite vow. But it seemed like he was just taking the principle from it. All right, so let's, let's look at the Nazarite vow and what it was. First of all, the word Nazarite, God's the one who gave this vow. He gave it to to Moses. He explained this vow, and if somebody wanted to do it, it was a free will vow. It wasn't an obligation at all. You know, there were a lot of laws that were obligations, and if if you wanted to do it or if you didn't want to do it, it made no difference. You just do it anyway because God said do it. This wasn't like that. This was a free will vow vow. If anyone's heart moved them, is how he would describe it, they could do this. It was just a free choice. The word Nazarite means to consecrate. It has nothing to do with the city or town of Nazareth, all right? This is confusing for people. Oh, Nazarite, that's somebody from Nazareth. No, it has nothing to do with that, okay? Matter of fact, maybe, possibly, the city of Nazareth was actually named after the word Nazarite. It would be the opposite, but they're not related So the word Nazarite means to consecrate. Here's where in Numbers chapter 6 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes, or eat grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skin, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy, he shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near A dead body. These are the three things of the Nazarite vow. Number one, he's not allowed to have any alcohol. That's just why he's on the vow. And and afterwards, he explained, afterwards they could go back to these things. But why he's on the vow, no, he says, no wine or strong drink, no alcohol, do not cut the hair, so not allowed to get a haircut or shave, and could not go near a dead body. And sometimes they would add other things to this. So these were the things that the Lord said, but they were separating themselves. You'll notice that these things inherently are not necessarily, you know, after the vow was over, they would go back to doing these things. Of course, you you know, sometimes this is weird to the American ear, depending on what kind of tradition or church you were raised in or whatever, you know, to to realize that the Jewish people did drink wine and things like that. Uh, And so they would separate themselves from that for a period of time, then they would go back to it. So it wasn't meant to be eternally uh, separated from it, even though there are actually there were groups of people that were Nazarites for life. John the Baptist was like that, uh, and that was fine too. But it was for a period of time to devote yourself to the Lord. These things were not inherently bad or inherently sinful, but it was a time to separate yourself to the Lord for a specific time. And that's kind of what we do when we fast. You know, the beginning of the year for 21 days of fasting... That's what we do. You know, we we set aside things that aren't necessarily sinful. I always like to say it like this. If they're they're sinful, you don't need to be setting them aside for 21 days. You need to be eliminating them from your life, period, right? Like you should not. I'm going to stop sinning, Lord, for 21 days. I'm going right back to it. Well, that's not the idea. You're missing the point. So we don't fast sin we set things aside that can be a distraction. We set things aside that can be a hindrance. We set things aside that can become a dependency, uh, or some things that we can be dependent on instead of being dependent on the Lord. So like television, social media, you know, certain uh, meals, food, things like that. All of these things are things that they're not bad, but they're things that people can become too dependent on instead of being dependent on God. How many know when you're stressed or depressed or not feeling good, it's easy to turn to something else other than turn to God? This is why Paul said in Ephesians 5, we is not a message on alcohol tonight, by the way, but that's why Paul said in Ephesians 5, he said, do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Well, we know, I mean, I did a whole sermon on communion the other day, and they had to talk to him about not getting drunk at communion. So we know they were drinking wine at communion in the church. So it's not at least in that culture, he wasn't saying anything bad about that. He was saying the the drunkenness part and taking it to excess, what happens is when you start depending on that, turning to that, grasping to that, when you ought to be turning to the Spirit. And you ought to be turning to being filled with the Spirit and and, uh, being, depending on that. So these vows and things like that, they were to devote yourself more completely to God. How many know that the church would be better off if we were doing this more often. Not even just in January for 21 days. But periods of time throughout the year, my family does this, even if we don't call it a fast. Sometimes throughout the year, we'll say, hey, we're cutting out this, this, and this, and this for the next few weeks. Is it, you know, just to focus on the Lord? Also, just to improve our family dynamic and family life and just be healthier people, (laughs) healthier individuals. You know, so these things are good. The human body needs that. The, 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 the sin nature needs that. Flesh needs that. An interruption where you come in and say, you know what, I've been doing this too much, and it's hindering me, and I need, to, I need to cut it out. It doesn't mean you got to give it up forever. You just cut it out for a period of time. All right, so this is what Paul was doing. Now, it may seem strange to you uh, that part of this was to not cut your hair. And I don't know what it did for Paul, you know, maybe this wasn't part of it him for all, but I'm just imagining on a few ladies that I know that if they couldn't trim themselves or, or you know, uh, take care of themselves for a few months, that that'd be a very humbling experience, <laughs> you know, and men too, but we don't mind looking shaggy, so it's a little different, but so maybe it was that, maybe it was a, a humbling, a humiliation part of it that, you know, the, the humbling, the humility part of it. not focusing so much on your... Appearance and how you looked and all of that that could have been part of it But I think there was something bigger going on Because at the end of this vow What The Lord instructs them to do is actually to shave all of it off shave all their hair that had grown And to shave their beard and all of that And then they would actually bring it to the priest and they would offer it on the altar as a sacrifice They would they would literally burn it as an offering to the Lord and to me, it it's almost like the hair represents the amount of time that you did this vow. So if you did it for two years, then your hair was a certain length. And so they would cut it off, and it's almost like you would bring it and offer it as you almost were offering your life for those two years on the altar to the Lord as an act of worship. You were bringing your hair to say... This was my vow to you. This was the time I spent serving you, living for you, more devoted and dedicated to you. And they would put on the altar and they would burn it as an act of worship to the Lord. I kind of think of tithing that way too. You know, when I, when I bring my offering to the Lord, my tithe, all of us, our tithe represents a portion of our life. You traded time, you traded literally a portion of your life to get that money. And when you bring it to God, it's an act of worship. You're saying, this was a part of my life that I exchanged to get this, and now I'm giving it to you. So it's very powerful, and that's, that's kind of what I think is going on with the, with the hair. The dead body part, uh, don't go near a dead body. You know, even if someone in your family dies, if you, if you got near, if somebody fell dead next to you, you had to start the whole thing over. It wasn't even your fault. You could have been one day away from finishing. Somebody died next to you, you had to start the whole thing over. And to understand that, you just need to go read the whole book of Leviticus. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but the dead body thing was a big deal, okay? And it was, an un- it was because they were unclean, and there was a lot of things to it, but we're not going to get into that. So at the end of it, the head was shaved, it was offered on, on the fire of the Lord. That's in uh, verse 18, number 618. It says, and the Nazarite, this is after he explains exactly how to offer it and all the offerings and all the priests, and we're not going to get into that. But verse 18, and the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. All right, so that's what Paul did. Let's go back and read the verse there, uh, verse 18. It says, and after this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, and at Chentria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So he's finishing the vow. As he leaves Corinth, he's finishing the vow, and he shaves his hair. So basically, it almost seems like the whole time he was at Corinth, he was under the Nazarite vow, which is interesting. And again, I mean, the main thing I draw from it is, you know, how we are to live and follow the example of those that have gone before us. I'll just be forthright, you know, I do no-shave November every year, and it's... It's kind of like Nazarite vow. You know, that's part of it. No, I'm just kidding. That's not why I do it, and I don't think that's why any of us do it. I've never done the Nazarite vow uh, exactly like that. Um, but we do fasting. We do the fasting. We do uh, the fasting and prayer. And that's the reason. The, You know, fasting should never become a religious duty. It should never be a, a competition. It should never be about showing others how holy you are. Or, you know, how, how religious you are, how devoted you are. It should never be about that. Jesus talked about that. He said, look, when you fast, bathe yourself, clean yourself, make yourself look bright, make yourself look good. Don't, don't even let anybody know you're fasting. Because the Pharisees did the opposite. You know, when they were fasting, they would go around looking gloomy, you know. And then, you know, people would, oh, you okay? Oh, I'm fasting, you know. And they want to make a point to let everybody know how hard they had it and how spiritual they were and things like that. Jesus said, look, don't do that. He said, if you do that, the only reward you're going to get is somebody patting you on the back, asking you how you're doing. That's it. He said, when you do that, you literally lose the whole reward of your fasting. So, it's very important that when we fast, we do it for the right reasons, we do it as in the Lord. However, the church has gotten away, in a lot of ways, from these types of things, from fasting and making vows to the Lord to consecrate time and things like that. So... Following Paul's example, I think it's a very good thing to do. If you're feeling dry, you're feeling disconnected from God, you're feeling like you know, you're know you missing something, you you need a, a recharge, you need a refreshment, man, it, this is a good idea. Take some time, set it aside, consecrate more time to the Lord. Because there's a principle there that the Lord said that those who draw near to me, I will draw near to them. Those who seek me diligently will find me. Those who seek will find me. Those who knock, the door will be opened. So there's this this concept in scripture that when the harder you seek, the more God responds. Okay, not the more he loves you or none of that, but when he sees his kids seeking, he responds. If we're half-hearted, that's the you're going to get a half-hearted result. So when we sometimes when you go, I hear people say that to me. Sometimes they say, Well, I pray, I'm not getting anything out of, read the Bible, I'm not getting anything out of, you know, I just I feel dry, I feel disconnected. Well, this was, sometimes I recommend this. I recommend taking time to, to fast. And seek the Lord. You know, break up your normal routine. Put God first in your life in a way that you're not doing right now. And that can have a big difference. Okay, verse 19 of Acts chapter 18. We're going to continue there. This is still on Paul's journey. So he, Paul shaves his head. Verse 18. Then we come to verse 19. They came to Ephesus. And he left them, that being Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, does anybody remember from last week what Paul said about the Jews? I'm done with y'all. I don't want anything to do. I, I wash my hands. You know, I don't want anything to do with y'all. I'm turning to the Gentiles because y'all are so wicked and rebellious and you always reject the Lord. And I told you right here at the very next city, what does he do? First thing, goes into the synagogue and reason with the Jews. If you missed last week, we gave the explanation of why this is. Why he had such a heart and passion for the Jews. And that's out of the book of Romans. We're not going to do that again. You can go back and listen if you missed it. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Paul just could not give up on the Jews. And he seemingly banged his head against a wall with them multiple times. But that same thing, that's his strategy. Uh, Now, interestingly... If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Paul switching strategies when he would go into a city, because they began to learn that when they would go into a city, that they would quickly identify him and his team, and then they would stir up everybody against the team, and then they would basically kick them and run them out of the city. So I forget what city it was in, right after Philippi, I think somewhere in there where they begin Paul began to separate himself from his team and he would leave his team in the shadows where nobody knew who they were and then he would go and be the public face and the public figure that way if he got kicked out if he got ran off and and you know caused a big riot and all that and they ran him out of the city then his team was kind of in the shadows in the background and they could still do some work kind of under the radar in the city we saw that in other places and it seems to be the exact same thing they're doing here. Let's read it again. They came to Ephesus, and he left them, Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Priscilla and Aquila actually remain in Ephesus while he leaves. And we saw that with Silas and Timothy. Same strategy. Paul would go in. He would kind of take the brunt of whatever was going to happen. He would move on, and his team would stay there and continue to work sort of you know, under the radar. If there were any disciples, if there was any fruit, they'd pull them aside, they would disciple them, they would train them, they would start the church getting planted. And this seemed to be very effective for them. This they really started having a lot of fruit with this. So that's the strategy we see working here. Verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. If we're not told why, presumably You know, he had a leading from the Spirit that it was okay to not stay. Um, But he actually went in and reasoned in the synagogue, and it says that they asked him to stay for a longer period, but he declined. On taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, we know that the Ephesian church ends up being one of the strongest New Testament churches. In, in all of Paul's church plants, uh, the Ephesian church ends up being a very strong church plant. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And it seems like there was just a little seed that was planted. And then he actually comes back on his third missionary journey and ends up spending three years in Ephesus. So we don't get the full story. You know, when you read the book of Acts, sometimes you read a verse. And that verse may encompass months or years. It can can encompass a very long period of time, but all we know is he was there for a short period of time. They asked him to stay. He said, no, I'll return if God wills, and, you know, letting you know, on his third missionary journey, he does return, so God did will, and he stayed there three years, but we're going to get into that when we get into the third missionary journey, but we know that he left Priscilla and Aquila there, and they they presumably did a lot of work, and they started kind of plowing the ground and so when he comes back yeah he has tremendous fruit there probably in large part because of Priscilla and Aquila and the work that they did there. Verse 22 when he had landed at Caesarea, can we put the map up again Shane so he leaves Ephesus and he, and he, he goes all the way across the Mediterranean and he comes to Caesarea, which was right near Jerusalem. Caesarea is mentioned multiple times in Jesus' ministry and in the book of Acts, and basically it was a major port for the Mediterranean. So any, anywhere you were going on the mainland on this side of the Mediterranean, you, mo- most of the time they were going to come in at Caesarea. It was a major port there. Now there's something interesting that happens here. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then went down to Antioch, it says, verse 22. So if you look at the map, you'll see at the very bottom Caesarea where he pulls in. Then he swings up back to Antioch, which is where they started. That's near the purple, the Cilicia area there. So he goes back to Antioch. Antioch is the sort of home church of Paul. Because you remember... uh, he wasn't really completely accepted at the Jerusalem church, you know, not, and they had Peter, they had all the big guys, you know, and Paul wasn't, he didn't just fit right in there. And so he ends up going to Antioch and that Barnabas was the one that brought him to Antioch. And so that's kind of his home base. That's where he begins and ends his missionary journeys. But notice this in verse 22, it says, When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then went down to Antioch. So when I read that, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm missing something because I don't ever remember a church at Caesarea. I'm trying to remember when did a church at Caesarea get planted. So I'm going back. I'm looking through everything. I'm trying to figure out. I'm missing something because I don't remember Paul ever planting a church at Caesarea. And Jerusalem is right close there. It's a few miles away. So I thought, well, maybe... You know, maybe it means he went to Jerusalem and visited the Jerusalem church. But, I mean, that's not what it says. It says he, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. It doesn't say anything about Jerusalem. So I'm like, well, how is there a church at Caesarea? So I start looking through this, and then I realize what happened. The church at Caesarea, we find out about in Acts chapter 10. And this, let's just read it. Acts chapter 10 Verse 1, because I was thinking, well, Paul planted this church, and he's visiting it now, but that's not what happened. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, you will remember this story very well. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Y'all remember Cornelius? There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. The entire chapter of Acts chapter 10 is really a story of how the church at Caesarea got started. But I love this because you, at least in my time of reading, I just never connected the dots. And I didn't think about now Paul is actually coming here several years later. And we're finding out there's a church there that's thriving that he went and planted. And the only explanation is that Cornelius and his family, they started this church. So what happened uh, with Cornelius, you know the story. I'm going to briefly go through it. But Peter and Cornelius, they both have a vision, right? Peter has a vision. Cornelius has a vision. And basically God tells Peter, look, I'm ministering to the Gentiles. I'm reaching the Gentiles. Don't just minister to Jews. He ends up going to preach to Cornelius. This is uh, verse 24. It says, on the following day, this is Peter and his team. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Peter begins to preach the gospel to all those who are gathered there. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So this group of people, the very first Gentiles that were saved, apparently they continued this work in the gospel. They continued to minister they continued to, you know, it says their whole family, their whole household was baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. They continue this church. Well, all the way later, which several years later, and I don't exactly know how many years later on Paul's second missionary journey, he's passing through Caesarea, and he stops to check on this church that Cornelius, he stops to check on Pastor Cornelius leading the church over there in Caesarea. No, I don't know if Cornelius was the pastor or not. It doesn't say that, but... He, they had this experience, and they're leading this this church, and I and I love that because you see this fruit that remained, this fruit that stayed with Cornelius and them, and and then Paul ends up stopping there. We don't know how long he stayed there, and then he goes back to Antioch, and technically, this actually completes the second missionary journey. Paul he stops at Caesarea, then he heads. Back to Antioch. In verse 23, it, it just ends so fast. Let me read it to you first and just tell you what it says. It says, After spending some time there, he departed. So, after spending some time in Antioch, after spending some time there, doesn't say how much time, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phygia strengthening all the disciples. Well, that actually begins his third missionary journey. I know that it's, uh, I know that it's very quick, you know, and it's just a very short verse, but you, it's almost like he ends the second missionary journey and starts the third one all at the same time right in verse 23. But, we're, but, he, but actually when we get into chapter 19, it gives us more explanation about that third missionary journey. So after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and fire gear strengthen all the disciples. That begins his third missionary journey, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna get into that, that tonight. So let's review briefly the second missionary journey. We want to cover everything that we've went through real quick, just kind of run through it because we've covered so much stuff, and the whole second missionary journey we've been on this semester and even into uh, last semester some, if I remember correctly. So number one, very first thing that happens on Paul's missionary journey. And let me pause here because a lot of the things that we're going over through the book of Acts, a lot of things that we're covering, I know are very sort of technical and historical and a lot of details, and I'm not like in here telling you how to get closer to the Lord or, I mean, we end up covering all of, a lot of that, but I think it's very important to know and understand these things when it comes to your relationship with the scripture. And, and, and if you'll notice, one of the things that I do with the scripture when we're going through it. When there's a little detail, like, for example, when he tells us that Paul was under the Nazarite vow, I don't just skip over it and go, oh, Paul's under vow, and go to the next verse, because I believe every single thing there is there for a reason. I think everything that is there is there to instruct us in some way. We know that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says God breathed for instruction, correction, to rebuke, to encourage, so Sometimes people ask me, well, how do you study the Bible? Well, as we're doing this, I'm, I'm kind of demonstrating it. I'm showing you what I do. When I read the scripture and I see something that seems insignificant, like Paul's under a vow, he cut his hair, and it's very short, I don't just skip on to the, rush on to the next thing. I pause and I go, man, what does that mean? Why did he tell us that? Why did, why did Luke, who's writing Acts inspired by the Holy Spirit, why did he want to take time to? tell us that Paul was under a vow. Just that brief little piece of information. And we take time to dig into it. Sometimes when I read the Scripture, you know, I'll read multiple chapters at a time. Other times I'll get into one verse and I don't get any further. Because in that verse, something stood out to me. Something, you know, got my attention. Something I, I begin to dive into, dig into. You know, we all have Google. You get on there, you can figure a lot of stuff out. So you get in, dig in, study the Word of God ask questions. You know, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see and understand. And I think that all of these things come to life to give us like a really clear picture of the Word of God. Because I don't think that the church should be ignorant of these things. Like, I think we should know and understand about the book of Acts. There's really no reason for us to have read the book of Acts multiple times, but yet not understand the things that we're talking about. So, Again, I understand it's a little different than a Sunday. You know, I'm not just like up here preaching and getting everybody all excited. But these details are important. In in my opinion, these details are important. And if they're not important to you, you don't have to come on Wednesday night. All right, just come on Sunday then. That's fine too. But you'd be wrong. You need to be here on Wednesday night. So that's... Anyway, all right, so let's go back through the second missionary journey. This is going to just refresh our minds and kind of help solidify it. First thing that happens... And this was a big moment. Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to revisit all the churches that they had planted together. I've said this before when we preached that sermon. This is one of the saddest moments in Scripture to me. Barnabas, whose name meant son of encouragement, he's the one that went and found Paul when others didn't really want him around because they were scared of him and they didn't trust him and all that Barnabas was the one that went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch and, and helped him find a place in the Antioch church. And they, they went and plant. And remember, when they left the Antioch church, the Holy, they were praying and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said to the Antioch church, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas whom I have called to the work that I have called them. So God said, I called Paul and Barnabas to do this work. And yet, they, they, and so they do, they go and they plant all these churches on the first missionary journey, but when it comes to the second one, they have a division and they separate. And I think, man, how sad is that, that you got two men that were called by God, the Bible says they were called by God to do this work together, and yet they had a division and they split over it, and we really never hear much about Barnabas again, um... And the, the Scripture continues to follow Paul from that point forward. And if you, if you really read it, well, I'm not going to dive into it too much again because we had a sermon on that. But if you read it, I do think that Barnabas was, was wrong. Not that his opinion was wrong. I think his opinion was valid. But what do you do when you have two people that have a valid opinion? Sometimes somebody has to yield, right? Someone has to, someone has to yield. Someone has to submit. That's why the word submission is in the Bible. And that's not always pleasant. And it's funny because people will say stuff like that. Like, well, I'll submit as long as I agree. Well, there's no point for submission when you agree. That's not submission. If you both agree, then you agree. So the the point of submission is when you don't agree and you have to submit your opinions, your thoughts, your viewpoints under someone else. That's difficult, isn't it? The Bible says we ought to do this in marriage, too. So, But that's not what happened. They had a disagreement. The disagreement was, of course, over John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, by the way. Family will get you in trouble. You know, you've got to watch it. But Barnabas had a soft spot in his heart for John Mark, and this was, this was Barnabas' personality. I mean, he, he, lo- he had a heart to help people and, and look out for those that others were abandoning. I mean, he had done that for Paul. And so he's doing that for John Mark. John Mark made a mistake. This, the reason Paul didn't want him to go on the journey was because John Mark had abandoned them on their first missionary journey. He wasn't tough enough. You know, he was a mama's boy, something. I don't know. He had to go home in the middle of the journey. He left them. And Paul said, I am not taking him again. I love John Mark, but he's not going with us again because he jeopardized the journey last time. And so they had a disagreement over it. And um, so this is, how the, this is how the second missionary journey starts out. And I think the reason it's so sad to me is because I've seen this type of thing happen in the church world, where people are working, they're accomplishing, the gospel's moving forward, a church is growing. You know, this happens in families, happens in businesses, and the enemy will bring in a division and it's like now we were, we were fighting the devil. We were uh, fighting the kingdom of darkness, and he brings something in. Instead, now we're fighting each other. And Satan is notorious about this in churches. If you were raised in church, you know about this. There, there's division. There's schism. There's things that happen in churches sometimes because people get divided. They start fighting about the dumbest things sometimes. You know, I mean, even Paul writes in the New Testament, he has to write to somebody. I can't remember the name. Who was it? Phoebe? Somebody, I don't know, tell them to get along, tell them to, tell them to make up and get along. He said, you know, they're sisters in the Lord. They need to not be fighting. Yeah, that's church life. All the way back then, that was happening. You know, somebody gets their feeling hurt over, oh, they didn't, I didn't get invited to this, or well, I didn't know about this, or my kid didn't get to do this, or so-and-so didn't get to sing, and then, oh, on and on and on and on and on. How many of you know it's a distraction? It's a distraction off of the main purpose and off of the main thing. And everyone's eyes ought to be looking forward, going, we're going to fight the enemy, we're going to fight the kingdom of darkness, we're not going to fight each other. But they made a mistake on this, somebody made a mistake, and I believe something that God had called Paul and Barnabas to do, that Barnabas ended up missing out on that because of a personal preference, personal opinion. So instead... Paul takes Silas. So on this trip, uh, they begin, and they begin to go and visit all the churches that they planted in the beginning, which was the uh, churches of Galatia. Let's go ahead and put the map up, Shane, too. You can just leave it up while I go through this. Um, So they they begin, and they go through the churches of Galatia. And this is where they're visiting all the churches that they planted in the first missionary journey. So if you look at that big green section, Galatia, this was uh, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, uh, Antioch, uh, not the Antioch that he came out of where his church was. This is a different Antioch. He goes through all of those churches that he planted on the first missionary journey. He strengthens them. He encourages them. He spends time with them. And so that was kind of the purpose to begin their first missionary journey was to go back through Galatia and revisit these churches that were planted. Then you remember they skipped Asia, which was that big pink section. They skipped Asia. Remember, they tried to go in and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbid them, said do not go minister into Asia. So they skip all of Asia and they end up going to Macedonia, which is the big orange section in the top left. That area was called Macedonia, and that's where they went to Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, and then they go down to Corinth and Athens and all of that. So that's, that's kind of the, the track. But also on this trip is where Paul picks up Timothy, and Timothy ended up being one of Paul's most faithful uh, assistants, one of his most faithful disciples. You know, if you've read through the New Testament and you read the epistles, Timothy is mentioned in almost every single epistle, which means Timothy was traveling with Paul. Because when he would, wherever he was at, when he would write an epistle, he would say, Paul and your brother Timothy, or Paul and my son in the faith. Timothy. Timothy was always with Paul all the way to the very end. All the people that left Paul, all the people that abandoned Paul, all the people that walked away from Paul, and the list is long. I think I gave it to you at one point. But Timothy stayed with him the whole time. Timothy never left. And don't make a mistake and think that it was because Timothy never got aggravated with Paul or because he never got offended by something Paul did or said. That would not be correct at all. But the reason the relationship lasted is because Timothy pushed past that, and he overlooked that. And any relationship that is valuable, any church relationship that is valuable, any friendship that is valuable, is going to have to push through and past offense, getting offended, being being upset, having things said about you wrong, things you didn't understand. Uh, getting information about somebody that you that called you to disrespect them or some, on and on and on and on and I see it happen all the time. Look, just because someone does something wrong that you perceive as wrong or if it, it doesn't mean you're supposed to break break relationship or or leave the church or leave the marriage or leave none of that. Sometimes you just you push through and you press through And that's what Timothy did. And it's not because the road was easy. I can tell you the road was very hard. I can tell you the road was very difficult. When you study uh, Paul's life and his personality, he was not an easy person to get along with. Even if he had the best personality in the world, he was not an easy person to travel with. Because if you go read the list of things that he went through, being shipwrecked, sleeping, you know, sleeping out under the star, not having enough food, not having enough clothes, getting beat multiple times, getting stoned multiple times, getting thrown in prison multiple times. And guess who's always right there with him? Timothy. So Timothy had to be tough. Timothy had to be strong to endure all of that. So on the second missionary journey, we pick up Timothy. Wow, what a a find. We pick up Timothy. And then, of course, we also pick up Luke, who's writing the book. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us when Luke was picked up, but we believe that Luke was picked up on this missionary journey simply because up until this point in the book of Acts, when he wrote about Paul and and, uh, Barnabas and all of these guys, when he wrote about them, he, he talked about them as they, them, you know. But on this missionary journey is where it switches to first person. So he begins to write, we stopped here, we did this. So now we know Luke is traveling with them. So he switches the persons which, with, with which he's writing it, which makes us believe that this is where he was picked up, somewhere along this way. So he joins the convoy. And as I said, they go to Philippi, they meet Lydia and the jailer, and they plant the Philippian church. They plant the church in Thessalonica. They minister in Berea and Athens. They probably, because it seemed like they had some fruit, they probably planted churches in Berea and in Athens, but we don't have any letters to the Bereans or the Athens, either because there weren't any written or because they were written and we just never recovered them, we never found them, which is possible. But there was a lot of fruit in Berea and Athens, because you'll remember at Athens, Paul preached. That's where he preached the sermon to the unknown God, and he gives that whole powerful discourse. And so we believe their church is planted there, but we don't have any letters. Then Paul arrives at Corinth. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. He plants the Corinthian church. While Paul is in Corinth, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So just remember a few months before, he was in Thessalonica, and we get 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. While he's still on this trip, he ends up writing them two letters from Corinth. I think that's important because sometimes when you read the New Testament, when you read the epistles, you might think, oh, this church has been around for a long time he, he's writing them, and you know, this church, may, maybe this was five, ten years ago that this church was planted, and he's writing them this letter. Well, at least in the case of the Thessalonica church, this is just a few months. You know, this church has been only going for a few months when he writes First and Second Thessalonians from Corinth. So he hasn't even finished his second missionary journey. He's already beginning to write letters and write epistles to the churches that he visited and planted before. Also, I think that's interesting, because when you read First and Second Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians, it gives you an idea of how young and immature this church was. I mean, they were just getting started; they were just getting off the ground. He's not writing to a church that's been very well established uh, and you know has had time to grow in the faith and be mature. Like they're very young, very immature church when he's writing these letters to them. Then, you know, the things that we've already covered tonight that uh, Paul makes a brief stop in Ephesus, leaves Priscilla and Aquila, and heads home to Antioch. He makes a pit stop in Caesarea and visits the church there. Then he heads home to Antioch. Now everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) Okay, we got through that, and that was just the first 10 minutes of my sermon. Now I need to get into the real part. No, I'm just kidding. That's that's pretty much it for tonight. I'm not going to keep you real long. We have one little section left in. Yeah, you can go ahead. We have have one little section left um, on Apollos in this chapter. And we already met Apollos. Apollos is talked a lot about in the New Testament by Paul. He's mentioned to the Corinthians, and we're going to get into that next week. We're going to spend some time looking at Apollos and who he was and what role he had in the church. But what ends up happening at the end of this chapter is. Priscilla and Aquila end up discipling this guy, Apollos. And that it's so instructive to watch how they handled him and the role that they ended up playing in his life. And so we're going to spend some time next week looking at the rest of chapter 18. We'll finish chapter 18, and we'll probably get into the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey next week. Amen?